All right, good morning, everyone. Hope you got some kind of sleep last night. That'll help you follow along this morning. Um, we're talking about what it means to be an authentic Christian. Uh, last session, last night, I gave you, some of you, at least on the front row, some $1 bills. Some of them were real, some of them were counterfeit. And my concern was that some of you who got the counterfeit ones might accidentally put a fake $1 bill in your wallet or purse and try to spend it sometime this next week. That, of course, is a federal crime. I don't know if they would arrest you for $1, but still, it's a federal crime, and I didn't want to get you in trouble. So I warned you last night, but we are considering a kind of counterfeiting that is not illegal. You won't be arrested for this, but there are greater consequences than printing fake money, and that is counterfeit Christianity. Now, some people do this intentionally, but I think most people uh, don't set out to be a counterfeit Christian. There's just a lot of confusion about what it means to be a follower of Christ, which is kind of understandable. 2,000 years after Jesus walked the earth, there have been a lot of people saying a lot of different things about what he said, and there's a lot of confusion that comes. So it's our, it's our intention and it's our business not to try to determine who is and who is not an authentic Christian. It's our business to be really, really clear ourselves on what it means and then to make our own decisions about what we're going to do about it. Now, Christians are not the moral elite. Those of us who are Christians know this. We are not Christians because we somehow tested on the top end of some kind of moral test, and that's what qualified us. Now, Christians are those who come to a set of conclusions based on the evidence about who Jesus Christ is. And they make some decisions based on those conclusions, and then those conclusions begin a process that changes them over time. Now, the test of authenticity that we're using comes from a 2,000-year-old document that was written 20 years after Christ walked the earth. And Jesus is the one, of course, who determines what it means to be a follower of him. And he told everyone what that meant. And so we're looking at this document. It's the New Testament book of Colossians. And we're focusing on chapter 3, the first 17 verses. Colossians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, those 17 verses begin with Two very important words. Those words are if, then. The idea is in the next 17 verses, we discover the then. But if you're a fall of Christ, then this is what's true of you. Those 17 verses, this little review, is divided into three categories. Each category has three identifying features. So that's three sets of three for a total of nine identifying marks of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So here are the three categories. There are the three decisions that Christians make. That's what we looked at last night. That's verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Now we're going to begin today, and then tonight we're going to look at the three practices that Christians do. That's Most of the verses are contained in this. That's verses 5 through 14. This basically gets into how being a Christian affects your daily life. What, What changes practically? And then tomorrow morning, we'll look at the three powers that Christians have access to. If you're going to decide to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to need a lot of help. Thankfully, Jesus provides help. And we're going to look at those three powers that Christians have access to. Now, the three decisions that we looked at last night that Christians make are seen in the three words that precede the name of Christ in the first four verses. They all begin. Did the sound just drop or did I? No? Okay. It's in my head. Very good. They all begin with the letter W. They are with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So Christians look at the evidence 
of Christ's life. They look at his miracles. They look at what he taught. They look at the evidence behind the resurrection, and they conclude that there's a logical explanation. He really must have been who he claimed to be, God in flesh. So they decide to attach their lives to him. That's the first decision. That's the beginning point. They decide to be with him. And what that does is that begins to change who they are. They begin to value what Jesus values, what heaven values, because, well, that's where Christ is. The values of heaven begin to be written over and rewritten over the values of their own heart. And they are also willing to wait for when Christ returns for everything to work out. So like everybody, authentic Christians would prefer to have a good day, not a bad day. But if they have a really, really bad day, they understand that God's in the middle of this. And they are in the middle of a big story that will not be concluded until Jesus returns. So they're willing to wait for when Christ returns. Now, with these three decisions in place that we talked about last night, Christians begin to go to work on the implications of these decisions. And what they do is they put in place three practices, three patterns of practice. Now, these practices are seen in three lists in verses 5 through 14. It is the practices, I think, of the authentic Christian where a lot of confusion exists. Here's the confusion. Some think that it's the practices that makes a person a Christian. So they evaluate their own commitment to Christ and maybe other people's commitments to Christ based on whether or not they're performing well enough or doing good enough in the practices of the Christian faith. But it's the decisions that make a person a Christian, not the practices. This is very important to understand. The practices are connected to the decisions, but the practices don't make a person a Christian. The practices are just the natural result of the decisions. They don't make a person a Christian any more than the things that I do to grow my marriage makes me more married. I'm already married. That decision was made 34 and a half years ago. The question now is, do I want my marriage to grow? So it's my daily life practices that determine whether or not my marriage is growing, not whether or not I'm married today. So every day I don't wake up and say, you know, if I don't work really hard at this marriage, my marriage, I'm not going to be married today. No, I'm married. That decision was made. But you see, it wasn't enough for me just to stand up in front of my friends and family before my wife 34 years ago and say, I do. That was a very important decision. But that was one big decision that needed to be followed by thousands, thousands of much smaller decisions. See, well, the problem is that I had lived as a single guy for years before I got married. So I need to change the daily practices of my life in many ways. It turns out, I didn't think this about myself, but it turns out I was a pretty selfish guy when I got married. I thought, it was a, I, thought I was a pretty okay guy. But I had a lot of work to do. You know, as a single guy, I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. And that's the advantage of being single. You wake up every day and, you know, if you got a job, you should show up to that. But then once you get off the job, then it's kind of like, well, what do I want to do? I don't know. What do I want to do? And I would probably, like many of you do, it's like, well, if someone calls me and it sounds interesting, I'll do that. And if on my way there, someone else calls me 
And that sounds more interesting. I'll go do that. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of the advantage of being single. You can just kind of do whatever you want to do. But when you become married, not so much. And I discovered that, that, you know, I just can't do whatever I want to do because now I'm married. Becoming less selfish was a really good thing for me, but it didn't happen automatically. The day after I got married, I didn't make the marriage decision on one day, and the next day I woke up an unselfish guy. No, that, that took work, and I've still got a lot of work to do on that. I had to implement new practices. Some of the practices I implemented, for example, is I, I learned that it was really important for my wife and I to start using a calendar together. Now, as a single guy, you know, I had a work calendar, but I didn't have a personal calendar. Why do you need a personal calendar? Every day is its own adventure. <laughs> but when you get married and you've you got to figure out, what are we going to do on our day off? It's like, I don't know. Well, if we're going to do this, we should coordinate and plan. Really? We, we need to coordinate stuff? We, we do. And then if we're going to do on a vacation, it's like, well, we've got to talk about what we're going to do with that. And then if we're going to go on a nice vacation, then we probably should save money for that, which requires a budget. A budget? I mean, it's a single guy for me. Money just came in, it came out, it came in, it came out. Boy, if it is a married guy, if we're going to get together on the same page financially, we've got to come up with a budget. So these are just all kinds of little practices that I didn't know when I said I do. Someone didn't tell me, hey, by the way, you're going to be budgeting in a year from now, and you're going to be calendar planning, and you're going to be a much better vacuumer than you ever have been. No one told me any of those things. But that, those were the smaller practices, the smaller decisions that went into that big decision. It's the same kind of thing when you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. You don't just say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, and then go on and just do life the exact same way. You've got to implement some changes. Now, not only was I a selfish guy when I got married, what I discovered is I didn't really know that much about love, which sounds kind of weird. I mean, I, I dated Rebecca. We fell in love. We got married. How would I not know much about love? Well, I thought I was a pretty loving person, but it turned out that I was loving as long as I was being loved. As long as somebody liked me, as long as somebody agreed with me, I was a very loving person. But as soon as someone, a.k.a. my wife, disagreed with me, well, the deal was off. I didn't feel loving anymore. I didn't act loving anymore. And so much to my surprise, the person that I had just committed my lifelong undying love to was someone that I got really upset with over and over again. Why? Hadn't I meant what I said when I told her that I would commit my life to her and that I loved her on the day that we got married? No, I'd meant it. The problem was the patterns of my life up to that point had shaped who I was. And so it was my history, not my intentions, that kept winning. Now we're going to put this, I think we put this phrase up here because this is so important for you to understand. It's been so helpful for me. I have over time estimated the power that I have to make a decision. We do have the power to make a decision. But what tends to happen is we have made a thousand decisions before the one we just made today. And the weight of those thousand decisions are much greater cumulatively than the weight of the one decision I'm making today. So I decide, you know what? I'm never going to sit in this area again. And I'm, I mean it. I'm serious about it. And then before the week's out, 
guess what? I'm struggling again in that area. Why? Did I not mean it? That's what I used to think. I must not really mean it. So I, I've got to, I mean, I've got to cry longer, and I've got to feel, feel real, real emotion to, to really ramp up, you know, my intention. What I didn't realize for so long is I needed to change the patterns of my life and realize that it was going to take a long time for me to overcome the ruts that I had built in my life over the years. This is why practices are so important. So when you decide to be with Christ, your past is forgiven, but it is not forgotten. Even though you keep intending to be a different person, it's your history, not your intentions, that will keep winning. So the patterns have got to change. Now, the key word that's repeated in verses 5 through 14 is the word put. I mentioned each of these three sections has a key that kind of unlocks the understanding. The key to the first section were the three W words that go before Christ. The with Christ, the where Christ, the when Christ. The key that unlocks this next category is the word put. You see this in front of several lists. We are told a number of things that we are to put to death, and a number of things that we are to put away, and a number of things that we are to put off, and a number of things that we are to put on. Each put is at the beginning of a list of common, long-term patterns of behavior that must now be placed in a different location or altogether thrown out if you are going to be with Christ, if you're going to allow Christ to change you. You're going to have to rearrange. You're going to have to put things in different places. Recently, well, actually a few years ago, I came home and my wife had completely rearranged the living room. I mean, not just tweaked it, completely rearranged it. For example, the couch that had been up against the same wall for 15 years was now at an angle kind of towards the center of the living room. And the two couches that we'd been sitting in in the same place for years were in opposite places. Now, I'm not near as selfish as I was when I first got married, so I didn't say anything, but I didn't like it. I mean, the reason I didn't like it is not because I thought it was a bad plan, but it, it's, it's different. I wasn't used to that. And I grew up in a home, it was kind of an unsaid rule, but furniture should always be perpendicular to the walls. It should never be at an angle. You know, that's, that's way too artsy to put things at an angle. And I didn't know this, but it wasn't until I saw the couch at an angle, I was like, that's just wrong. That the reason couches are straight is because they are to be up against a straight edge. They're not to be put at an angle. Now, again, I didn't say all this, but I was really struggling on the inside. And for a long time, you get up in the middle of the night and move around, and you bang up against the furniture because it's in a different place. And it's like, I can't believe that my living room has just been rearranged. Now, it took me a long time to get used to it. And by the time I got used to it, I actually... I came to agree with her arrangement because, you know, when we have people over, if everyone's got their backs up against the wall, you know, it's not really as conducive to conversation. So that's what she was trying to do is create a, a better space for relating to people. Like, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. But <laughs> it really, it really took me some time to get used to that because the couch had been put at a different angle and the chairs had been put in a different place. 
Now, when you attach your life to Christ, he has, as we talked about last night, a different set of values. And that calls for a different arrangement of your life. What has been a comfortable arrangement of your life over years, maybe, now needs to be rearranged, now needs to be changed. So like me with our living room, this is met with resistance. Not necessarily because you disagree with what needs to change, but because you're just used to the old ways. So the three put lists are designed to accomplish a very big shift in our life. And I want to describe this shift for you before we begin to get into the first of the three lists. Before you attach your life to Christ, this is the natural characteristic of most of us. We love things and we use people. That's generally the way the sinful heart develops. Is we, we develop an attachment for things and then we, we use people. We may think we love them, but as soon as they stop cooperating with us, we discover we don't love them because we were actually using them for some, some, some of our purpose. So we love things and use people. After Christ, the shift, this is the big shift. We need to shift completely. We need to learn how to love people and use things. Not form a hard attachment to things, use things, but love people. Now, every one of us in this room, if you could kind of graph the spectrum of these, we'd be in different places. We'd be in different places on the loving versus using people. Some of you are a little closer to the loving side. Some of them maybe a little more to the using people side. Same thing with things. Some of us are a little freer, and we're more free to use things, not just love them. But some people, we, we really are materialistic, and we love things. So wherever you are on that spectrum, when, when you decide to attach your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit moves into your heart, and he says, all right, we're going to have to start remodeling and rearranging this place. And these are the big shifts that by the time he gets done, by the time you die, the goal would be to have moved the needle from using people towards loving people significantly. And to move the needle from loving things back to using things significantly. Those, those are the big shifts. That's the big thing that Christ wants to do in our life. Now, this switch isn't just a decision. You don't just look at these words and say, huh, yeah, I want to love people better. Click, done. That'd be great. The decision is the beginning. But it either does or does not occur based on the patterns of your life, based on what you do today and then what you do tomorrow and then what you do Monday and Tuesday and a year from now and five years from now and you keep doing. It's the patterns that changes. So the first of the three put lists are the patterns that reduce our love for things. The last two patterns we're going to look at tonight are the patterns that increase our love for people. So let's look at the first list that reduces our love for things. This is what it says. These are the two verses we're going to look at now. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let's, let's walk through what this means. Put to death what is earthly in you. What does that mean? What is earthly? Well, it's the things that belong here. 
and can't leave here. Those are the things that when Jesus returns to wrap up history, and those of us who follow him go with them, those don't go with us. They stay here. They're earthly. You know, this building is earthly, obviously. Can't transport it to the next life. The money in my bank account, that's earthly. I'm not aware of any way to transfer money from here to heaven. It, you just can't do it. My car is earthly. My house is earthly. So why would we want to put those things to death? I mean, we need those things. I'm going to need a car to drive back home tomorrow. You are too. We're going to need some place to live. We're going to need some money. So why would we want to put them to death? Well, the problem isn't the earthly things themselves. Those are gifts from God. As long as we live on earth, we're going to need earthly things. The problem is that what we tend to do with those earthly things is we move those earthly things from objects that we can use, that we can enjoy, that are gifts from God, that meet needs that we have. We shift from using them to attaching ourselves to them, to loving them, to literally worshiping them. Now, very rarely will we actually bow down and worship to them. But you know when you're worshiping something, when it becomes the center of your life and you begin to organize your life around it. You begin to worship that. And that's what we tend to do with the things that are earthly. And when, when we do that, in doing that, we take what is earthly, what's out there, and we give it a place in our hearts. Not just in our days, but in our hearts. And we become, over time, so attached to those things that we, can't, we literally can't let go. You know, we grab a hold of it, and it turns out to grab a hold of us. And the reason is that what is earthly now, as it says, is in you. It's not just out there. It's not you know, for you. It's actually taking up residence in your heart. You now need that thing on a soul level, not just to accomplish some earthly function. For example, what was intended as money to pay rent or tuition or car payments or food is now something that, boy, your emotions rise and fall with it. And it becomes the central goal of your life to accumulate more of it. So now something that was a good thing and is needed now becomes God-level something. We do the same thing with food. You know, what was intended as food to nourish our body now becomes something more than just food. Eating is now how we handle stress and how we feel better when we feel bad. We're using it instead of our relationship with Jesus. So what has an important place in this world now takes residence inside your heart, and you cannot stop obsessing about it, and you cannot stop living for it. The word for these kinds of attachments in the Bible is the word idolatry. That's the last word on the list that we're going to be looking at. Because the list is, tells us how we, how we develop idols. The definition of idolatry is to assign God's status to something in this world. We take something in this world, we elevate it to God-level status. It becomes our idol. You know, in ancient times, people would actually craft idols. 
Now, we take objects as they are and give them God-level status and turn them into idols. And the thing is, once we let those idols into our hearts and we develop a pattern of organizing our life around these things, we can't just set these objects aside. We're attached to them. That's why we have to put them to death, as it says on this list. Why death? That sounds a little extreme. Well, it turns out that whenever we elevate something in creation to the level of creator, we give it a kind of life, a spiritual life in our hearts. And so that attachment really becomes like a a living thing. It has the power of a living thing. And like all living things, it grows stronger the more you feed it and weaker the less you feed it. So when it says put to death, it's not talking about some big single act. You know, a swing of the sword. No, it's, it's talking about a longer process. The New Testament is written in the Greek language, and the Greek word here for put to death is one word that literally means to slowly drain the strength from. That's what it means. To, basically to start to death is what it's talking about. So if you're attached to something here on earth, it would be nice if there was some silver bullet, some spiritual sword that you could just say, I'm done with this. And the next day, you're done with it. That's not the way it works when we make something into an idol. We give it a life. And we need to decide to stop feeding it if it's going to weaken in our lives. So this list is not just a random list of things to stop doing. It's a description of the power structure of these living attachments and how they grow and how we feed them. One of the things I I used to think when I would read through, particularly the New Testament, I'd encounter a list, and there's several lists in the New Testament, and I would just kind of blip out. Because, I mean, lists are, well, they're not fascinating, right? Lists are lists. You don't ever see someone, here's a grocery list. Oh, let me read that. (laughs) No, it's just a list. Just work your way through it, check it off, be done. Here's a to-do list. Ugh. And and so I I didn't understand, and what I understand now, in the New Testament, most, not all of them, but most lists in the New Testament are in the order they're in for a particular reason. And if you ponder the list, there's a lot of understanding that comes out of why they're in this order. That's true with the list that we're going to look at today. So this is a description of the power structure of idolatry, of idols in our hearts. Now the first item on the list is sexual immorality. Now if you look through the New Testament, sexual immorality is usually the top one on most of the lists. Not only because it's probably the most common sin throughout all of history, but in a sense it really summarizes idolatry in all of the sins. And for each of these items, we're going to work through this list now. Each of these items, I'm going to give you a working definition based on what the Greek word means and how it positions in this list. The first step of idolatry occurs when we step out of bounds. That's what this word sexual immorality means, to step out of bounds. In Greek, the Greek word is pornea, which is where we get pornography from. What it means literally is unlawful desire. 
Desire is fine, but God, for all of our desires, has said, here are the boundaries. But pornea, or sin in general, says, yeah, I'm going to operate outside of those boundaries. So this word most commonly does refer to sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage. But it is also the first step in every sin, the first step towards idolatry. Whenever we take any desire outside of the boundaries that God has established, we're elevating that desire above God, and we're doing so, when we do so, we're making it an idol. Now, here's the challenge when it comes to whether it's sexual morality or any kind of desire. We think that we have a desire, and we should just follow that desire wherever it takes us. What we don't realize is that when we step out of bounds, we are turning that desire into an idol, and we're giving it a life that will cause us to lose control. Now, this doesn't just happen with sexual desires, of course. It happens with any desire. It happens with money. You know, we step beyond the the financial boundaries of what God has provided for us. We get into all kinds of debt, or we step, you know, we, we refuse to get involved in the generosity instructions that God has given us. And we find out pretty soon money has control over us. Now, why can't we just cross the boundaries that God has set up and go get what we want and then return back and live a life unaffected by that? I call these desire excursions. Why can't we just go on a desire excursion and come back like a vacation and move on? Well, the reason is that to us, God's boundaries are like rules that appear kind of arbitrary, and they limit our lives. But what God's boundaries actually are, they're more like the laws of gravity that define the fabric of moral reality. So, for example, when it comes to gravity, you may have the desire to fly, but if you act on that desire, jump off a 10-story building, that desire will take your life because you stepped out of the boundaries of reality. Now, you could say, hey, you're impeding my freedom by, not, by putting a fence around this building. You could say that, and that would be true. But it would also be foolish because that's a life-ending thing to do, to scale that fence. The invisible laws of God that govern our desires, like sex and money and food and relationships, are every bit as real as the laws of nature. He's created both structures. You cross the barriers that God has established, and they will take your life. The problem is they won't take your life near as fast as jumping off a 10-story building will. And what do you got? Eight, nine seconds before you die there. You cross God's boundaries today, nothing happens. Tomorrow, nothing happens. Ten years from now, nothing happens. Oftentimes, 15, 20 years, do you start reaping the pain and the disaster of crossing those boundaries. So the barriers that God has established are there for our good. They're a fence on the top of a 10-story building. Yes, they do limit our freedom, but that turns out to be a really good thing. So the way we establish idols is, first of all, we step out of bounds. Whatever God has said in this area, we say, no, I really want to do this. And so we do it. 
And in doing so, we don't just go on a little desire excursion. We actually make something into an idol. Then the next step is we go morally passive. This is the word impurity, but we go morally passive. Now, every Christian I know, every authentic Christian I know, steps out of bounds morally. Why? Well, it turns out that whenever we decide to follow Jesus Christ, even if we do it young, we've always already had a history of fence jumping when it comes to God's boundaries. We have a long history of just doing whatever we want to do. And that history has a really strong pull to it. And even though you decide to become a Christian, that history doesn't go away. That pull is still there. But what distinguishes a real Christian from a counterfeit Christian is not the absence of sin, but whether or not they go morally passive in the battle against sin. That's the big difference. You see, counterfeit Christians, they think of Jesus as kind of a magic forgiveness wand that they can wave over life, making it okay, without any effort on their part. Now, Jesus really does forgive. But they take advantage of that and say, you know what, I don't need to take God's word seriously. I don't really need to learn it. But an authentic Christian, they take their struggle with sin seriously, not because they have to earn God's forgiveness, but because they've decided to be with Christ rather than use Christ. So this second item on the list, we go morally passive, comes from that second word, which is impurity. The Greek word here means to to not clean, to not prune a tree. That kind of means one of those two things. Either to not clean, the way I say it is to not take a moral shower, to not clean up your messes, and to not prune your life. So when you do step out of bounds, what that means is you clean up the mess you've made. Starts by confessing your sin to God. Then if it's appropriate and possible, you clear up the wrong that you've done to someone else that you've wronged. You ask for their forgiveness. And then you move on. And this is a key thing. You move on, not in guilt over what you've done, but in gratitude. I'll just tell you, I have, I've wasted way too many days wallowing in guilt. And if, if you confess your sin... The guilt is done. If you wallow in guilt, what you're really saying is that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was not quite enough for your forgiveness. It's what I call the the cross plus plan. It's like, yeah, you know, God, I'm really grateful you took on a body and you lived here and you lived a perfect life and, and you died a death I didn't deserve to give me a life that I don't deserve I really appreciate all of that, and I'm grateful for that, but, you know, I'm not really going to feel forgiven until I beat myself up for the next three days, in addition to what you've done on the cross. Then I'll allow myself to be grateful for your forgiveness. My three days of wallowing in guilt is nothing compared to what Christ did on the cross. So we need to clean up the mess and then just move on. One of the common statements that I've heard from people over the years being a pastor is something along this line. I've just sinned again. I guess I'm not a, I'm not a real Christian. I must not be a real Christian. 
And my thought usually as I talk to them is the fact that you are struggling with your sin is one of the best indications that you probably are an authentic Christian. If you sin and it's like, ah, well, no big deal. Well, I don't know that you take this seriously. Authentic Christians, they take sin seriously. Counterfeit Christians, they're looking for every excuse in the Bible they can to do whatever they want to do. Or they're just ignoring God's laws. So authentic Christians not only clean up their moral messes, they also prune the things in their lives that lead to sin. Now, why, why do we prune trees, or rose bushes? Well, it's because they get overrun with, with too much vegetation, and that keeps it from producing fruit. Same thing happens with our lives. What happens with life is it just becomes cluttered. If you don't do anything at all, your week will become just full of all kinds of unimportant things. It's just the way life goes. So if we're going to grow, what we need to do is we just need to have regular garage sales where we just get rid of the stuff. And I'm talking about on your schedule. Kind of got to go through and say, you know what? <laughs> what purpose is this serving? Is this doing anything for us? Even if it's time off, are we using that time in a way that really refreshes us? Or we're just vegging and staring at walls? You know, we, we prune, we, we look at our lives, and we figure out, now, what can I get rid of? Now, these activities that we're pruning, they're not sin. They just take us to the edge of the fence. And what happens is once we're at the edge of the fence, all it takes is a stiff wind of desire and whoop, over the edge we go. So the pruning kind of keeps us away from the, the fence and allows us to grow. The next item on the list is we let go. This comes from the next word in the, in the verse, which is the word passion. We let go. Now, in our culture, passion is kind of the only way you know the true direction of your life. You know, what are you passionate about? Do that. Now, that's not necessarily a, a bad idea, is to figure out what you're passionate about. But in the pages of the Bible, passion is not necessarily always a good thing. Turns out we can be really passionate about some really bad things. So the idea behind passion, the Greek word literally means to let go. So here's the deal. We, we step out of bounds, and then we don't clean up the mess. We don't ask for forgiveness and step back in bounds. We go morally passive. And then what happens after that is we start losing control. We just kind of let go. I mean, what if you drove your car that way? You know what? I'm, I'm going to passion my way down the mountain tomorrow. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, take my hands off the wheel. Hopefully, you not have everybody with you. And I, I'm just going to passion drive myself home. Now, that would be foolish. But we do that all the time morally. It's like, you know what? I'm just going to let my heart guide me. Well, God gave you a brain, which is the steering wheel, so that you might actually think about what your heart's telling you and decide whether that's taking you off a cliff or not. Now, if we don't take regular moral showers, we don't confess our sin, we don't actively prune our lives so that we grow, it's not long before all kinds of wrong passions start gaining influence in our hearts. The temptation at this point is just to, just to let go. But you know, if you're heading for the ditch... The most important thing you do is grab a hold of the wheel and get back on track. If this is where you're at, 
if you just feel like you just lost control, you, you gotta gotta get back on track. But if you don't get back on track, then we come to the next item on the list, which is we lose control. If you let go, you get to the next word, which is evil desire. The Greek word here means a consuming desire for what is worthless. At this point, it's almost impossible to stop the pull of moral gravity downward. It's kind of like sledding on an icy hill. You know, I'm, I'm from Canada. All my family are Canadian citizens, and so we grew up doing a lot of ice stuff. And if you've ever gone down an icy hill on a sled, toboggan, disc, whatever, you, you get going, and you've got just maybe half a foot to stop yourself. And if you don't stop yourself in that half a foot, gravity takes over, and you are going. This is kind of the idea. You just lose control. Now, if this is where you're at morally, even in the middle of the slide down, you have a choice. You can bail. I remember doing this as a kid growing up. You're heading for the tree. It's like, this is going to hurt to bail, but it's going to hurt a lot more to hit that tree. So you just bail. And that's what you need to do. If that's where you're at, you need to do the drastic thing and tell someone, hey, I'm out of control in this area. I need help. So now we get to the foundation of the list, which is coveting. This is at the heart of idolatry. Stepping out of bounds is the step of idolatry. Coveting is the heart that drives us. Coveting is what anchors us to this world and convinces us to spend our entire lives only for what is earthly. Now, what's really interesting is the Greek word for coveting is a compound word. It's made up of two words. These are the two words, hold and more. It's just a perfect description of what it means to covet. Why would we want to hold on to something? Well, because this world is unstable. So we are looking for something stable. Now, it may not be a big something, but anything stable. This is why people, you know, get into addictions. I mean, whether it's a, you know, drug or an alcohol, it's a small little thing that I can control. I don't know how life is going to go, but if I drink this or I ingest this, I know how I'm going to feel five minutes from now. So I'm going to control, I'm going to hold on to that. And it turns out, once you hold on to something here for desperation, for security, it's never enough because the next word is more. That's because the holding is never one way. We take hold of it, and what we don't see is it takes hold of us. And even when we let go, it's like it doesn't. It will not let go of us until we begin patterns of letting go of it. So how do you get rid of this, this pull of coveting, this, this desire to always, oh, I really want that, or if I could just have this, or I could have more of this? How do you get rid of that? Well, here's the bad news. You can't. That's why verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Only after God destroys the earth, and there's absolutely nothing left to covet, will we decide... 
Okay, I'm going to stop coveting now. Okay, I'm going to stop making idols because there's nothing left to make idols of. Until that, until we leave this place, the only solution is to put these things to death. To keep pruning our lives, to keep starving the things that are idols. Now, I don't know what your idols are, but I do know that like my idols, they were not constructed overnight, and therefore they will not be removed overnight. The work of dismantling our patterns of sin will occur primarily on level two. So if you're taking notes, I want you to circle this. Don't go morally passive. This is where the battle is. This is where the battle is. Don't go morally passive. So the question I want to ask as we wrap up this morning is, what needs to be cleaned up in your life? Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Confess it to God. Is there a person that was wronged in this sin that you need to ask their forgiveness? Ask their forgiveness. If they're here, I would highly recommend you, do, you take care of that today. If not, schedule at the time this week where you can address this. What needs to be pruned from your life? Where is it that you're walking to the edge of the fence and kind of hanging out, waiting for the Santa Ana winds to push you over? Where, where are you wasting your time? Now, no one can do this all alone. You need help. That's why the next two lists that we're going to be dealing with tonight deal with how we build relationships, how we stop manipulating people and start loving people. So we'll look at that tonight. Let's pray. Father, we, all of us, admit that we have idolatrous hearts, that even though we know that you are the one true God, we keep trying to make an idol out of someone or something here. We give something here, someone here, the status that only you deserve. And as we do that, it just begins to pull us down. God, I pray that you'd help us to build the patterns of staying within the boundaries of your fences, of pruning our lives, and of asking for forgiveness when we do break through those barriers. We thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.